Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. folks, welcome to another episode of Blockhead. Here we are, in lockdown, trying to while away the hours with another podcast. Hopefully your ears aren't worn out completely, and you are in the mood for some cartooning talk. Comics and cartooning, that's what we're here to talk about. Wow, boy oh boy, it's been a strange ride, hasn't it? We are all in lockdown and uh, Working from home one way or the other. I know some of you have encountered some serious difficulty. Some of you aren't well. I hope you do get well soon. Some of you have uh, lost your jobs. And and I hope that that does not last. And that there is support. And a support system there for you. And we will get through this thing together. It's not easy though. Our frustrations have been uh, fairly few compared to many I think. Trying to find groceries. That's a big one. Uh, trying to find a store in which you can actually find the groceries available. All of that is pretty difficult these days. I'm sure we're not alone in that. That seems to be a common complaint, a common issue. Uh, I'm spending my time, a lot of my time, transferring my classes from uh, traditional delivery to online delivery. And that is uh, an enormous project, much bigger project than I thought it was going to be. There's a lot of additional work to do and additional uh, elements to add. And if you are going to post a PowerPoint presentation or something, you want to make sure you uh, imbue it with enough detail to make it interesting and, and also to last, you know, because some of these presentations will last for another section of the course in the future. But there's a lot of work involved. So it, that's that's keeping me offline. It's keeping me busy and out of trouble. <laughs> that's for sure. But it's, it's keeping me away from Instagram and it's making it a little tricky to get this together as quickly as I want to. So that's why it's a little late and why you're not seeing so much from me on Instagram if you're following me. It's just, uh, you know, and I'm not alone in this. Uh, all of my colleagues are going through this in education. We're, we're all making that move very quickly. And uh, it's, it's going okay, but it's still a lot of heavy lifting in the beginning anyway. But our students are going through it too, right? And everybody is. And uh, it's a new environment something to work through hopefully not to be used to for too long uh, I hope that we round the corner soon but these are difficult days that's for sure so podcasts comics let's let's think about things we love right and focus on some of that and today we have an old friend of mine on the show Terry Flippo and you may not have heard Terry's name in the past but Terry's been around in comics and in small press comics for almost 30 years now. There are lots of folks who were there in the early days of small press, just like there have been throughout the history of comics, who you may, whose names don't uh, find their way into the histories or the history books. And Terry was one, I was another. There was a bunch of other folks you'd see at the tables, uh, names that 
escape me now, but uh, there was so much vitality to that scene. And Terry was a big part of that. And so he went from the small press and, and he's been working in comics for 30 years and doing his thing as well. At the same time, continuing to work full time for the Postal Service as a mail carrier. Uh, just retired last year after 32 years working for the mail service. And all along he's been making comics and his latest comic is about his life as a mail carrier. It's called Deliver Me and it's been a big success with, you guessed it, mail carriers and postal workers. And there is a very active Facebook page that Terry started around his comic that has a huge audience, well over 14,000 members I believe at last count. And Deliver Me is the centerpiece of that page. And so Terry's built up a huge audience there. And it's, it's just very gratifying for him. It's gratifying for me as an old friend of his to see that he's found an audience that really loves his work and is enthusiastic about his work. And uh, what can I say? That's, that's what it's all about, right? It's communicating getting connected to people one way or the other. And in these days, it's more important than ever. So Terry and I are going to talk about his work, his comic strip, what postal workers are going through these days with the epidemic and, and what they're dealing with, and a whole bunch of other stuff about small press and SPX. And So sit back, listen to two old friends talk, two old men too, got to admit that, and talk about not only what's going on today, but about the past as well. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll talk to you at the end. So here we go. Terry Flippo, creator of Deliver Me and myself in conversation. Hello, Terry. Welcome to Blockhead. Hey, Jeff. Thanks a lot. I'm so glad to catch up with you and glad to have you here on the show. It's been a long, long time, but we've known each other a long time, and we've kn we've known each other's comics for a long time. So it's it's really nice to see the success that you've had with Deliver Me. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. It's been a while since we talked, and it's been uh, it, and it's it's been a while for the success of Deliver Me to to take hold. But by gosh, it sure has, and uh, it's exciting to see, especially as somebody who's a fan of yours and a friend. I'm really pleased for you. Yeah, it's been a surprise to me too. <laughs> for, for the listeners who don't know about Deliver Me and haven't been reading it and haven't caught up with it, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the strip and how it developed? Uh, well, I had, I had been doing all kinds of comics in the past and never found much success with them. And so finally it got to the point where I thought, maybe I'll tell some stories about stuff that I know, which that being the post office, I worked there for 32 years, so... As you can guess, I have a lot of stories. And uh, <laughs> so I, I started doing the strips and posting them on Facebook and sharing them to various postal pages. And then I, I, I started my own Deliver Me page. And uh, it just kind of took off from there. What was the response like on the, the other pages when you first started to post this? Uh, just uh, this happened to me, you know. This, this happens all the time, this kind of thing. You know, they everybody identified with the uh, with the stories. I mean, we have pretty universal stories, you know, all doing the same job. Well, so sure. Seem to strike a nerve, I guess. Yeah, I would think you, you, there are a lot of shared experiences, but it, it must have been come as a kind of surprise 
to other postal workers that here's somebody from their community who's a cartoonist because I I, I don't know of any other postal working cartoonists. <laughs> there is another one, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't post real often, but he does do uh, postal comics. He does postal comics. Yeah, um, and, I mean, and in, in fact, uh, when I first started Deliver Me, I called the strip Postage Due. Uh huh. And I went ahead and I I got thirty strips in the bank, all labeled Postage Due at the top. And right before I went to post them, I just I searched postage due and don't you know there was another comic strip called postage due oh really yeah by a by a postal worker it it was actually by a guy that worked in the vehicle maintenance department of the post office oh wow okay so i I had to change the name but it turns out deliver me works pretty good too well yeah i think so i mean it it sort of gives a sense of exasperation (laughs) right you know, I mean, but so does postage do in the sense that you get this feeling that, OK, time's up. Right. <laughs> you got to pay for it. Exactly. But yeah. But deliver me. I think there's like this uh, this sense of exasperation and desperation that uh, that I think a lot of postal workers seem to share. <laughs> right. This cry for help. <laughs> oh, I'm <laughs> laughing, but it's not funny. <laughs> I mean, what is amazing is that, yeah, there are a lot of issues that postal workers face that you faced in your 32 years as a postal worker, and you find the humor in all of that. I try. <laughs> it's it's laugh or cry, right? It's laugh or cry, yeah. I've been reading the strip and enjoying the strip, and a lot of what the strip deals with is exactly that. It's, it's the day in and day out of life as a mail carrier and today's strip i thought was particularly interesting because it deals with what we're all dealing with right now uh but post postal workers and and mail carriers are dealing with you know perhaps even more than a lot of us is uh 19 right can you talk a little bit about the one you posted today uh today was day one versus day eight yeah the guy on the front stoop of his house Right. Okay. Uh, we've got the the mail carrier coming up uh, with the mail in his hand to hand it to the the patron, and the guy's on his front porch. The carrier says, uh, "You know, how's it going, Mr. Adams?" And Mr. Adams says, "You know, it's going fine as long as I don't get this this virus." So this is day one. Everybody was taking it a little, uh, you know, not too seriously. And so the second panel, we jump ahead to day eight. And the mail carrier is in a hazmat suit, and he's got a bullhorn calling to the customer, you know, attention, citizen, I have your mail. And the customer is on his porch cringing and and pleading, touch me, don't breathe on me. And uh, that's pretty much what we're encountering now. Well, and what's interesting in the strip is the homeowner is saying, don't touch me, don't come near to me. Um, but he's not wearing any protective gear. No, he's not. And that seems to be something, you know, unfortunately, that we're encountering all over the place. You know, I mean, either for lack of masks and rubber gloves and whatnot, or just this kind of, you know, sense of imperviousness, the, this you know, sense of invulnerability, you know, 
uh, that that people somehow seem to have. Yeah, I mean, it runs the gambit. Run into people that are are like, just do your job, quit complaining. And then there's other people that are like, you know, I'm in fear for my family and and myself. You know, I don't want to pick something up and take it home to my family. Right. Right. And so how are mail carriers dealing with COVID-19 right now and how are they uh, coping? Uh, as best they can, I guess. They're, they're taking precautions where they can. Um, they're, a lot of them are not depending on the Postal Service to take care of them. They're, they're buying their own, their own wipes and their own masks and gloves and, and such. So uh, they're, they're doing the best they can. They're doing the best they can, but they don't have a lot of support. Not really, no. no. So I mean, I've I've heard of some offices where where a manager will take it upon themselves to to go out and buy the uh, supplies. Right. But, um, I, the postal service talks a good game, but from what I've heard, they're not they're not following through real well. And is that true of the support that you feel or don't feel? from administration and management generally speaking i mean in the day-to-day as well oh yeah yeah it's it's a systemic problem it is and and that's because i mean there's a sense that the distance between the mail carriers and those working on site and those uh working in management is just there's just no connection there no, no. For management, it's all about numbers. It's whatever, do what you have to do to get the numbers. And a lot of them take that to heart. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, at the same time, they ask an awful lot of postal carriers. What is it? I, I want to say Green Lantern's oath in Brightest Day and Blackest Night. What's the postal oath of the mail carrier? Go uh, right through rain, snow. Yeah. Of dark of night. And we do dark of night, too, nowadays. Yeah, you seem to. And you're out there uh, on the street, you're uh, Saturdays, Sundays, uh, delivering at all different times. Sometimes the mail arrives, our regular mail arrives at noon, usually here at home. And then sometimes we get another delivery uh, later in the day or certainly on Sundays when we didn't before. And uh, and in all kinds of weather, uh, you know, so there's a lot asked of you guys that I think we all take for granted. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's worse now because they've got a lot more sick calls and, and such, you know, to cover when when you have an open route, you've got to cover that route somehow. That's that's eight hours that that has to be covered one way or another. So right. it more often than not, it's take take a regular carrier make him carry his route and then make him carry two hours of someone else's route or more so tell us a little bit about what your life as a mail carrier was like some of of the 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 day-to-day but also some of the experiences you had oh god you're putting me on the spot here well it's okay take you know take your time terry (laughs) but i think it's it's of interest to know what particularly as backstory to the strip Knowing a little bit about what you experienced as a mail carrier, first of all, every day, for example, did you drive a, a, a truck or did you push a, a cart? Oh, no, I was uh, I had a I had a mail truck. I had what they call a park and loop route where you drive, say, from corner to corner and you get out at each corner and deliver that block both sides of the street. 
then okay. get back in and move to the next corner. Okay. So that that was uh, that was most of my route, and then I had some. They they are called cluster boxes or uh, CBU cluster box units, where you have like maybe townhouses or apartments, and everybody gets their mail in a set spot. So I had some of that too. Where were you delivering the mail? What what area? Uh, I delivered in outside of Frederick, Maryland, which uh-huh. is uh, a suburb of Baltimore. Right. About 35 miles away from Baltimore. It's uh, kind of a rural community, but but it's it's growing. Then you got out, and what kind of distance would you be walking? Uh, I would guess maybe I never clocked it, but it was probably seven or eight miles a day. Was this pushing a cart, or did you have a backpack, or uh, when you were? I know you had the truck, but then when you got out to deliver the mail door to door, yeah, you had a, a mail satchel. Okay, so you carried that, everywhere. right? And with the advent of Amazon, you would get out and you would carry the mail and whatever packages you could fit into your satchel, and after that, then you would drive to each house that had a. a a package. So, I, I mean, Amazon completely changed the postal service. Not only in terms of what you had to carry. Right. Just, just the amount of time that it would take in a day. If, you know, before you would have a couple of packages that you could fit in your bag and you could carry it down the street. But now it's like you do that and then you have to go back and backtrack and deliver packages to maybe eight or 10 houses in each uh, loop that you would deliver. So it added a lot of time and the post office, their, their opinion was it doesn't take any longer. Even though you're running back and forth all the time. Right. Correct. I would also think the weight of what you're carrying varies and your, your back would begin to suffer and your legs would begin to suffer because you're not pushing a cart. Right. Right. Now, well, I got, I was, I was one of the lucky ones, but there are many, many there that that have had knee surgeries and hip surgeries and and foot problems and yeah, it's uh I liken it to to being a professional athlete where you're you're out and you're doing it every day, but instead of only working ten or fifteen years, you've got to do it for thirty years, day in and day out. Your body really takes a beating. Yeah, and do you have any lasting effects from all of this? Heavy lifting? Knock on wood, no. Yeah, okay. I'm one of the lucky ones. Has all of this stuff found its way into the comic strip? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a physical and a mental toll it's taken. I mean, when when it gets around Christmas time and the volume is up, the parcels are heavy, and it gets dark at 4.30. Right. So you're, you're racing not only the clock, but you're racing the sun. Yeah, because uh, you can imagine the worst the worst job to have after dark is being outside in the cold in the dark trying to read. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) We just take it for granted. You you know where everything goes. Yeah. You still have to be able to read the mail, though. I mean, it's Uh yeah, it's a it's a challenge. That's why you see them out there with headlamps on in Uh December, January. And is that provided by the post office? They say they are. I mean, if you if you request one, they'll try to find you one if they have <laughs> if they have enough. But most people that I know and and me personally uh, bought our own. 
and you didn't get compensated for that. No. It's clear that there's some kind of disconnect between, you know, those people who are ordering you to do these things and the people who are on the ground. Uh, not that that comes as any surprise, because that seems to be the case in almost every, uh, you know, kind of large envi- uh, business environment. Right. Right. And, and we would always say whenever uh, whenever a, a carrier went on to become management, that they they suffered management amnesia. They forgot forgot completely what it was like to actually do the job. Uh, and they just followed the management line, you know, Yeah, because they're getting pressured in a different way. Right. So right. how many hours a day were you out on uh, delivering mail? Actually on the street? Yeah. Probably about six, seven hours. Uh-huh. And then how many hours were you in the facility getting your mail together to go out every day? It, it, it averaged between an hour and a half to two or three hours. So we're, so we're talking about nine, ten-hour days? Pretty much. Pretty much. For 30 years? Yep. And six days a week? No. Uh, well, occasionally when they were really hard up for help, but, but most of the time it was five days a week. And I would have rotating days off. So I would be off on Sunday, say Sunday, Monday, one week. The week after that, I would be off Sunday, Tuesday, then Sunday, Wednesday. So the day off rotated. That's no fun. <laughs> Not really. That's a lot of Saturdays to work. It's a lot of Saturdays to work, and it makes it difficult when you're raising a family and kids yeah. are home from school. And right. You miss a lot. You miss a lot, and your family wants to do something. Right. In your career as a mail carrier, are there any incidents that really stand out to you as you look back on it that are um, would come as a surprise to any of us? I had my share of dog encounters, which oh, yeah? everybody hears. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I took the mail up on a porch one time, and the screen door was shut, but the interior door was open. And this dog heard me coming, and he jumped up and hit the screen door and pushed it open. And as soon as I heard him coming, I took off running, and there was nowhere to go except for a pickup truck. So I jumped in back of the pickup truck and just waited until the owner came and got him. Oh, how long was that? Oh, it wasn't long. I mean, they, they heard him hit the door. As soon as he was out the door, they were they were after him. So dogs are an ongoing problem. Yeah, unfamiliar dogs are. I mean, there's just as many dogs that you know and you like, and, and sometimes you take treats to, even though you're not supposed to. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of good dogs out there, too. Yeah, we're, we're all not supposed to bring our dogs treats, but we do anyway. Right. Yeah, you know, I'm always doing that. So there's the dog problem. Okay. Uh, What other kinds of issues did you encounter or moments did you encounter that stay in your mind? Uh, You have the the irate customer every now and then, you know, they're waiting for a package or or they're waiting for a check more like Mm -hmm. and they want to take it out on you and you just have to not lose your cool and try to explain to them that, you know, you can only deliver the mail that you've got. Right. A lot of people don't understand that. They don't want to hear it. So it's it's a challenge. You got to be diplomatic and keep your cool. I can imagine that you encounter quite a few people who can be very impatient. I know we all get that way, right? Oh uh, yeah. Waiting for the mail to come and uh, waiting for a check or something like that. Sure, especially when you're dependent upon it. But even still, 
the mail carrier is kind of helpless in that regard. Right. And with with Amazon, it's really bad because with that one or two day delivery, they order it and they're looking for it. And sometimes it's just not there, especially as time goes has gone on. It used to be a very regular thing with Prime that you'd get it in two days. But now it seems to be three, four days. It can be anywhere in that range. Oh, yeah. With with COVID-19, I, I don't think they're even guaranteeing. Oh, right. No. Anymore. Right. With COVID-19, it's a whole different ballgame entirely. I don't even the whole prime idea of two day delivery or even three or four day delivery is out the window. Right. Yeah. Right. I think you're looking at three or four weeks now if it's not medicine or yeah. food. Have you heard uh, from your colleagues and from those who you used to work with about their experiences, uh, you know, in this particular time? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, on on the Deliver Me Facebook page, it's it's every day. Oh, you know, well, so it might be a good idea then to tell uh, the audience a little bit about the Delivery, Deliver Me Facebook page. How did that start and then how did it evolve? <laughs> it started just as a way for me really to, to share my comic strips with my coworkers, you know, in my office. But uh, it, it just grew. People shared it. And, and of course, I, I would put put the strips on other postal pages and direct them to the deliver me page. So a lot of people found it that way. And, uh, I, I was very fortunate that I had sent, uh, a, a group of strips. I'm not sure even how many to my, uh, my union down in DC. Mm-hmm. The, uh, they, they publish a magazine, a monthly magazine called the postal record yeah and it just updates everybody on union news and such and uh so i sent some strips to them and they contacted me it was probably six months later after i'd about forgotten that i'd done it and asked me if they could do an interview with me and if i would actually draw the cover wow so yeah it shocked me well that's great so, uh, so yeah and that was I guess it's been two Christmases ago. Well, maybe it was it was a year ago. It was 2018 Christmas mm-hmm. that uh, so I drew the cover of the the uh, issue and uh, they did a nice little article with some pictures and and my membership just boomed after that. It it went from maybe 300 to like 5,000 in the space of two months. Wow, That's it was incredible. incredible. Yeah, a little boost like that can go a long way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, that that magazine, I think they print like 800,000 copies or something like that. It goes to all of the union members in in the post office. Right. So do you you publish your comics in that newspaper or that newsletter? No. Oh, that'd be a cool idea if you did, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I would if they would have me, but they, uh, you know, I offered and I I didn't hear anything back. So I'm assuming they don't. It's it's a pretty serious, uh, pretty serious magazine. It's mostly devoted to union business. Well, still. okay. I mean, this is just just me. I think you should try it again. You know, squeaky wheel kind of thing. But I also they probably got a lot of things going on, a lot of business to take care of. And probably, you know, a lot of times those things just slip their minds be cool if you tried it again because it might somebody might just go oh yeah why don't we do that you know right. i always meant to get back in touch with terry but i didn't and i'm glad he wrote because i i definitely want to do that you know 
I mean, that happens a lot. We always tend to think that it's like, oh, they don't like me. (laughs) Right. It's just that there's so much going on that you get lost in the shuffle, I think. Yeah, it's really, it's very, very easy. You know, uh, for for people who are busy and union reps and whatnot are going to be pretty busy people. And, you know, so, you know, you never know. If they didn't respond, it's probably not because of any other reason than they just got overwhelmed with stuff. So. I right. would encourage you to do that again because I think that's a great venue. Wonderful. Plus, you get your stuff in print, which is nice. You know, for guys of our generation, print is always desirable. Right. Mm-hmm. That that was always the goal, right? Yeah, it was always. Get in the- print and get seen. Yeah, somehow or another, get an audience. You know, and and participate in the world of comics that you knew and loved. And I think that's that's one of those big issues that we. Um, you know, we kind of face, you know, that desire to participate, to be a member of this active community. And I mean, that was always kind of as much of the goal as anything else. So Deliver Me, the Facebook page has a membership of about 14,000 people. Right. And now we just hit 14, I believe, in the last week or two. And you've got like five administrators because it's overwhelming. I do. I mean, I was trying to do it all myself and doing a horrible job at it. I had a a young lady named Jessica contacted me. She was a member and told me that she had some experience as an admin and would I, you know, would I like the help? And so I jumped at the chance and then we brought on uh, four, four others. Yeah. Michael, Michael, Nate, and Sheila. Okay. Now we have five. That's great. And yeah, they, they, it really takes a lot of the pressure off of me. They've, they've been a big help and, and they're, they're shaping the page too, you know, in, in, because the, sh- the page is no longer just about the comic strip. It's about li- the life of the mail carrier in general. Right. Right. The, the comic strip is kind of the anchor. I, I used to post three times a week, but I've got such a, uh, such a library of strips now that I've, I've gone to posting every day. So, How much of those are new? Not too many now. I mean, for the past week since, uh, the COVID-19 I've, I've been trying to do a new strip every day. And so I have done that. Wow. But, uh, you know, if, if some point I hit a dry spot, uh, I'll go back to rerunning the uh, early strips while so, I get caught up. So how timely are the strips? I mean, how fast do you put them up after doing them? Uh, right now it's, uh, I've got maybe three strips that haven't run. So I'm about three days ahead. And how long does it take you to do each strip? Well, the, the strips I'm doing now are comic book format. So they, they take a little bit longer. They're bigger panels and there's more detail than what I was doing with just the four panel horizontal strip. So it takes me about three or four hours, maybe. Three or four hours to pencil it, to ink pencil it. Pencil and ink. And how long does it take to write it? The writing, writing, I, I have a, a pad that I just keep notes on, and I pretty much uh, write it as I'm drawing it. I mean, I, I know what I want in panel one, so I'm really, I, I know what I want in all the panels, and I kind of just shape the story as, it, as I go. Is there a lot of whiteout, or you just you 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 just put it down as you think of it? Uh, no whiteout. I, I hate whiteout. I, I I hate trying to ink over top of whiteout. It, it's a nightmare. I gave up on on that a long time ago. Instead, I I would um, when I was still working hard copy, I would uh, cut and paste. So I would do my lettering, original lettering on the board, and almost every time I ever did that, I I refined it before posting. And I would do that on sketchbook paper, you know, using my Ames lettering guide. 
and then cut it out and paste it on top of the old lettering because before I scanned it because I, I, you can't work on top of whiteout. It sucks. You can tell my lettering is not up there with the best. You know, it's it's pretty uh, it, it's not real consistent, but I do the best I can. Well, it's Terry Flippo, you know, and I think that's the thing about lettering is that lettering is in a way it's like your signature it's your penmanship it's your you know it's it's your voice and so i always go back to schultz's lettering which i can't imagine like traditional comic book lettering on peanuts or you know somebody else doing walt kelly's lettering in pogo or i think lettering is a is as much a personal mark as the drawing is oh right right it's part of the art yeah yeah and it's, it's the voice, too. It's the visual voice, you know. And so when we look at a Schultz comic or you look at a Terry Flippo comic, and we, we read it and we, we had, there's a sound we imagine with the shape of those letters, which I think is kind of an interesting phenomenon, actually. You know, that when we read text, there is a tonality that is associated with the, the visual letter forms. Right. You know what I mean? So when you look at a logo, I'm getting into graphic design tech, uh, talk now, but when you look at a logo, it's got a sound to it and, and it's, it's got a tonality to it that we respond to. And the same thing is true with hand lettering, I think, even though we all might be, you know, writing in all caps at the same time, there's, there's a certain voice and a certain distinct voice with every individual's penmanship. Right. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So, so keep lettering, you know, I'm just saying. Oh, I will. I mean, I, I, I don't have enough computer knowledge to do computer lettering, so it's quicker yeah. for me. Well, and the transition for you from old school mini comics and stuff to working, I was always surprised, just pleased to see that you, you made the transition to working on a web comic because you'd been a diehard mini comics, small press guy forever. And long after the web had started to, you know, become central in terms of visibility for comics and publishing, you were still doing Axel and Alex as a mini comic and whatnot. So it was kind of a gradual transition for you. Was that a big leap um, or it, it was just like, OK, this is really the way to go anymore? And yeah, it was it was more a, a way to get the work out there immediately and get and get feedback uh, I really that's that's the best part. If you work on enough material to to make a book that you're going to print, it's going to take you three or four months. It did me anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's a long time to go without any feedback. And, and just t- to be on the Web is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. you get instant feedback, good or bad. And uh, you know that people are reading it. So that that's a great feeling. Yeah. It, it, I think that's got to be very gratifying, especially after spending years in the, you know, the small press mini comics trenches, you know, isolated from one another and and corresponding primarily by mail in those days. Right. That's yeah. That's how how you and I got started, wasn't it? Yeah, it is. Right. That's how we 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 got started was through the mail. And and uh, and I loved, as you know, we've said uh, privately to one another, I loved those letters that we shared in those days. I always looked forward to them. And it was a time in my life. And this was one of the things that maybe has been lost with the movement to, you know, communicating online. I used to love getting letters. It it was a, a 
and I loved writing letters. And I used to take a lot of time when I wrote you, I would take a lot of time writing those letters. I would spend, you know, an hour making sure that I said or more than that, you know, I'd spend hours writing them, making sure I said what I wanted to say exactly the way I wanted to say it, you know? Right. Right. It's a lost art. I mean, it's, it's, it's a far cry from a uh, great comic, dude, <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, it really is what you get now. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where, uh, and you would save those letters. I still, as I mentioned to you the other day, I still have your letters. I still have letters from, uh, one of my dearest friends from art school who, who passed away several years ago. Uh, I saved those letters that we shared when we were teenagers and, uh, and, you know, I have my letters from my wife when, when we were young and, uh, you I know, I mean, that too. yeah, you know, I mean, there was something about, I just, I think that's a lost art, just as you said, it's, and also the anticipation, uh, was, was really rich. You would send a letter. It might be a week and a half before you heard back, you know, and, uh, but you couldn't wait to, you know, every day I used to go to the mailbox and look for letters, you know, in, in those days. And, um, there was also, I think within the comics community, there was a kind of isolation when we go back on that period of time and before, you know, before the internet, <laughs> which right. seems like eons ago, uh, there was a sense of, of separateness of isolation because you experience the reading of comics by yourself and the enjoyment and the reading of the letters pages by yourself. And so, and, and when I was a kid and I don't know if you had this experience too, I bought most of my comics at uh, a local drugstore and um, it was before comic shops. So I didn't have a community, you know, of people at the comic shop to talk to. It was all on my own and I couldn't talk about it with my friends they just in those days it was it was kind of a uh, something to you know poke fun at you know, right. if, you, if you loved comics right yeah i used to get mine from uh, 711 i would ride my bike to 711 they had the the spinner rack in the corner uh-huh and, uh, we would know new comics come in on i believe it was like tuesdays and thursdays or something back in those days yep, yep. and we would be there and we would we would wait for them to cut open the bundle to put the comics on the rack. It was crazy. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, this was my brother and I, so we were obsessed <laughs> back then. It, it was nuts. And then we had a, uh, a newsstand that sold comics and they had probably a bigger selection, but you would go into the newsstand and it would be all these old guys standing around smoking cigars and drinking coffee and just the, the smell of newsprint everywhere. It was it was great. <laughs> yeah. You, you, back. I know. It's like, the, it's the kind of thing that I think a lot of people, you know, I, for me, those experiences, I used to, um, and I'm going to make a comic of this one day, but I used to, uh, when I was in junior high school, uh, at lunchtime, my friends would all be eating lunch in the cafeteria and I would disappear. And I ran up blocks away from school ran up to town to the main street where there was a little pharmacy and in this little pharmacy was this this um i think of her now as a, a little old lady and somebody just recently gave me her name and i i on facebook and i, I had never known it Kay cornick was her name and she and, was probably 35 right well i think she was she was she was more my grandmother's age she was probably <laughs> okay well i went up there to buy the comics she knew i was coming 
She knew I'd be there on Tuesdays and Thursdays to get the new comics. And it was, you know, a wooden floor, kind of a musty old school pharmacy uh, with big um, news racks with all kinds of magazines and stuff and a spinner rack with comics. And I used to spend all my lunch money and whatever money that I, I got from doing chores, you know, for my allowance for the week, which is usually like, you know, I think it was like at one point, the most I ever got was like a buck a week. But you could buy four comics with that. Right. Yeah. That's when they were put 15 cents, 20 cents, 20 cents, 15 cents, 25 cents, finally. And then 35 cents at the very end of my early collecting period. What an outrage. Yeah, I know. Right. 35 cents a comic. But that was in the day when you could get for 50 cents, you could get a big hundred page comic book. DC was publishing these big hundred pagers for 50 cents. That was a cool value. You know, all these reprints. That taught you about the history of comics while you were reading the newest stories about Batman or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. But those are some of my favorite memories associated with comics. And I kind of, part of what makes those things, and the same thing with waiting for letters, I think, is this anticipation. You know, um, immediate gratification is great, wonderful, but boy, there's, there's something to be said for anticipation. And for waiting for those things that you you love. Oh yeah, we've kind of lost that. You know, everything's got to be now, now, now. Well, everything's at our fingertips, and that's great. It's wonderful. You know, we can go watch whatever program we want to watch instantaneously. But we've lost that sense of of you know the build up before you you got it. The build up before I got a letter from Terry Flippo. The build up before the latest issue of Conan. You know the build-up before the the latest episode of our favorite television show, whatever it was. It's all kind of gone. Oh, well, there's no going back. Nope. So let's get back to um, your work in comics and a little bit about your history in comics. When did you start doing comics, and have you always done comics? I've done... I have made my own comics probably since I was around 12 years old. And, of course, I was making Marvel comics. I, I did comics with... Captain America, Iron Man. Uh, I was a Marvel kid, so I didn't really do Batman or Superman. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have, I still have probably six or seven of these comics drawn, uh, just like on folded in half uh, typing paper. There was no printing for me back in those days. Well, I, it just reminds me. I just uh, my one of the most gratifying things I'm, I'm experiencing right now. My nephew, my youngest nephew loves to draw and he's nine and he's he gets up my brother posted a photo of him early in the morning before school this is before covid closed everything down working on his latest comic book you know before he went to school and i just it just brought back so many memories and i just loved seeing that you know uh it's something that when we start doing this that's the thing man gotta tell i gotta make my comic book right oh yeah so you started then and then you know you, you start going through high school and beyond and so this practice just continued well it, it continued but it was broken i probably stopped reading comics around the time i was 15 maybe you know when i discovered girls and, uh, <laughs> And didn't get back into comics until I was 25. 25. Really? 
Yeah, I was married and I was delivering mail one day and went into a comic shop. It was this little basement comic shop that was on the route that I had that day. And uh, I just kind of looked around and I, I went up to the guy that that ran the shop and I said, you know, what's you know, what's good now? And he pointed out Daredevil, Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, all the big, you know, the big things. So I bought a couple and read them and I thought, wow, I think I might get back into this. And before you knew it, you were spending like half your salary every week. <laughs> oh, no, my wife wouldn't let me do that. <laughs> I had an allowance. I had like a $10 a week allowance. Oh, man. So so when comics, when you got back into it, comics were probably about a buck 75. Right. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Right. So, yeah, see, that was always the thing with me. I never had the money to spend after the 80, you know, the mid 80s. I, I, it was rare that I had the extra money to buy comics because they I was priced out of it and I can't afford them at all now. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's crazy. So, yeah. So so what so you went into the comic shop and this was like the mid 80s? Yeah, around 87 I would guess. 87. And so after you started reading them, then what happened? I remember there was a uh, a mini series about Predator that Dark Horse Comics did, and they had a picture on the cover of the Predator standing on the roof of a building with his arms up in the air, and I thought, wow, that is really cool. I'm going to try and copy that. So I sat down and I painstakingly copied that thing, and it, it, it actually turned out pretty cool. And I thought, wow, this is pretty good. I can I can do this. And so I just I, I kept copying stuff like that. I was a pretty good copier. You hadn't drawn since you were a kid? No. I mean, it was probably it was probably a good ten years, or maybe even fifteen. My gosh, and yeah, that I did that I did very little drawing at all. Wow, that's fascinating because most people, and I, I'm in art education. You know, I teach on a university level, and I teach in an art department. And you know, my encounters are usually with kids who have been working straight through. And every now and again, especially when I first started, I taught older people coming back to school, whether it's for a degree or just for continuing ed stuff. It's really rare at that particular age that people find their way back to to drawing. Now, they might after many, many years when they're like 45, 50 or something and they come back for a continuing ed class. But it's really rare. Somebody and it picks it up again. And then you picked it up and you started doing these copies and you got deep into it. Oh, I did. And it, it was, uh, gosh, where did I find out about small press? It was probably through uh, Comic Buyer's Guide. I saw that, that they maybe they had some reviews or something of some, some small press books, which was the eight and a half by five and a half digest size comics printed like it's staples. Well, yeah, eight and a half by 11 paper folded over. Right. Well, let's tell tell the audience a little bit about what Comics Buyer's Guide was, if for those who don't know. I mean, a lot of folks will know, but then again, a lot may not. So what was the Comics Buyer's Guide? Comic Buyer's Guide was a, uh, it started out as like a price guide, but by the time I, I found out about it, they it came out weekly and it was just like a newsarama of its day. It would have comic book news and interviews and reviews and there were a couple of columnists that would write about the industry and then there was a lot of people just selling comics there. A lot of a lot of uh, mail order that kind of stuff. This was before Wizard, for right. folks who remember Wizard. The Comics Journal was out, but the Comics Journal was focused on a different idea about comics than the comics buyer's guide and i think were there any other major magazines 
published about comics. I think those were the two, right? You had Comics Buyer's Guide, and, which was all about pretty much mainstream and also about the business. And it was much more, f- in a way, much more like a fan publication uh, in the sense that it didn't look critically at the work or at the industry. And then you had the Comics Journal, which was much more critical. Right, right. Yeah. Comic Buyer's Guide was uh, was more collector-focused, I believe. Yes, exactly. That's a great way of distinguishing it. Yeah. And uh, it was an odd size. Uh, it was like a tabloid size folded over kind of thing. And it was on newsprint, just was, as the comics journal was. Right. Uh, right. So they had that quality about them. But this was basically where comic fans congregated along with the letters pages in comics. Right. Right. All this was way pre-internet. Certainly through the, the 60s, 70s. I mean, I, I don't know when comics buyers began but i think comics journal began sometime in the 70s late 70s maybe i'm not sure you know i'm not sure if i'm correct in my history there was a thing called the menominee falls gazette i think it was called i'm not sure if that's correct but i I think think, that predates me yeah i'm not sure if that became the comics journal or not i'll have to look into that a little bit but anyway um if tom spurgeon was here he could tell me but uh he's not with us any longer unfortunately But, um, Tom, wherever you are, we're thinking of you. So there was the Comics Buyer's Guide, and the Comics Buyer's Guide had in it collector stuff and a big ad section in the back. Right. That's where I found you. That's where you found me, in the ad section in the back, you know, uh, where people might advertise not only their collections, whatever they had for sale of old issues and whatnot, but that's also where you could find information about small press books because people like myself would take out those little ads that cost maybe 20 bucks or something. Yeah. And it ran for two weeks and it was a little black and white three by two ad or something like that. Right. And it was, it was through finding you and, and some of the other guys that would, would advertise back there that, that I found out that there was this whole other world of comic book publishing, that it wasn't just Marvel and DC that, that people were making and printing their own comics and trading and selling and it really appealed to me. Oh, it did to me, too. It was exciting to realize there was this whole world out there. Right. You didn't have to work for Marvel and DC. <laughs> Not at that point, because there were what there were multiple distributors. There was Diamond, but there was also, who else was there? Capital City, was it called? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and maybe a couple of others. And you could solicit your stuff to any one of those folks and get it in comic shops. Right. If they accepted you, you know. Right. And you had the money to do the print run. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's that's why I stuck to photocopied comics. I mean, I, I was in an amateur press association where it would be 25 guys and they would they would all do their own comics. And then they would print them up and send a copy to each person in the the club and mm-hmm. everybody would read the comics that they got in the mail and review them and every three months or so their reviews would be put into a little magazine that was sent to everybody in the group so you could get reviews from your peers in small press that was great it was invaluable oh it was a lot of fun again you felt connected in a way that was so important in order for you to continue Right. And, and you could see what, what other people like you were doing. There wasn't a lot of superhero stuff there. You know, it was all a variety of different things. What Whatever floated your boat, you could do a comic strip about it, you know, and, and get it out there and share it and get feedback. And it, it was wonderful. You know, that's what's wonderful about being able to publish online 
is that there's a diversity of voices and points of view that wasn't possible in those days um, in the mainstream, because in those days there were gatekeepers and they had the bottom line was always the issue. How many people is this going to appeal to? And they had to appeal to the broadest possible spectrum. So they may not be interested in a strip about postal carriers and mail carriers because uh, they didn't think it was going to appeal to the, the general population. But you can do that now, and there is an audience for it, because you don't need five million people reading your comic book or your comic strip. You only need however many are interested, you know, and and you built an audience that is significant, particularly with, you know, today when we talk about niche audiences and being broken up into a lot of different components. But in those days, the bottom line, you know, suggested you had to make sure your comics appealed to this broad swath of people. Right. And, and now the common belief is almost vice versa. You, you want to appeal to a small group of people that are enthusiastic about your work. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's a really good point. Finding an audience that it doesn't have to be big as long as they're enthusiastic. Right. I mean, the, the audience these days is so fragmented. I mean, you can, you can see it on television. How many people watch ABC on a given day? I you know, know. It, it's it, between it's it's no longer CBS, NBC, ABC. Right. Right. You got, you got Netflix, you got Hulu, you've got any number of choices. And so you're not going to appeal to everybody. Yeah, it's true. And there's no need to. You just need to appeal to your crowd, whoever they are. Right. And, and I think the trick is finding your crowd, which I've never been able to do. But you have. And I'm really glad that you did, because it, it's so gratifying to see from my perspective as an, as an old friend and as a, a, you know, a fan of your stuff to see that you've gotten to this place where you've got a great audience who's really enthusiastic about oh, delivering. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, I'm very fortunate. Yeah, it, it is fortunate, but it came after a lot of hard work and a lot of trial and error. Yep. So you started, you know, drawing and focusing on mini comics and, and getting excited about this. Were you, had you begun to make comics before you started exploring the, the world of mini comics again? Or, you know, had you bought a couple of comics and that inspired you to start making your own? I don't think I really started making my own until I had had acquired some uh, some mini comics. Do you remember what those were? Aside from Dr. Speck, which was a uh, your comic was a was a normal sized comic book. The what is six by nine? Yeah. Uh, comic book. The uh, some of the ones that I found were Amoeba Adventures. Have you ever heard of that? No. <laughs> that was one of the first. I think I read about that in in uh, Tony Isabella's column in oh, yeah in Comic Buyer's Guide. Okay. Tony okay. Isabella used to to write. It was great. He was so open. You could send him his stuff, and he would write about you. Right. You yes. Yeah. Your stuff and and. Uh, and he was a really kind reviewer to people who were enthusiastic. I think all he wanted to do was encourage the enthusiasm among these these other creators. Right, right. So I, I discovered Amoeba Adventures through through him and ordered a copy and looked at it. And I was like, I think I could do this. And so I gave it a shot. 
and, and that's that, Axel and Alex. So Axel and Alex was your first foray into your own storytelling. Yep, it and was. For those who have never seen Terry's earlier work, tell us about Axel and Alex. Axel and Alex was a story about a, a little boy who mail ordered a robot, and this robot became his constant companion, and that was it. I mean, in the beginning, it was an adventure strip and uh, an adventure comic book, and I did that for a few issues, and it was tough. It's hard to do adventure stuff if you're not Marvel. Marvel or DC. And eventually, a few years later, it morphed into a, a humor strip. And I kind of changed the look of the characters. The robot was not this big giant robot anymore. He was a, a spindly little robot that Alex, the little boy, had mail ordered through a comic book. He had an old comic book that he got from his grandfather. And you know how the ads used to be back in the 60s. There was ads for everything. Sea monkeys. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that, that eventually... Uh, came into the series too he ordered the robot first yeah and uh basically axel and alex became my homage to calvin and hobbs i always thought of gigantor initially when i I encountered you know axel and alex that was the first thing i thought of do you remember that show oh yeah but then yeah i was just going to mention calvin and hobbs so it became an homage in a way that's great yeah instead of a tiger it was a robot yeah and you had modest success with axel and alex over the years people that saw it liked it but not many people saw it to be honest eventually you started thinking about doing other kinds of things right i I had a brief foray into autobiographical comics which i called flipped f-l-i-p-p-e-d uh, play on my last name. And uh, that was just uh, about my wife and my kids and I and just day-to-day kind of craziness that goes on. And I did that for a couple of years. And eventually I worked my way around to uh, to the post office. Right. Because it just seemed a, like a natural fit. Right. Right. Write what you know. And 32 years of craziness, I knew that. <laughs> so, For better or for worse, you knew all that. That's right. I said, let's let's go there and see what happens. Right. And it's really interesting how that paid off and how it really shows the truth in that adage, you know, <laughs> write what you know. Yeah. Yeah. It worked out very well. And uh, and so now you've you're going to be publishing your second book. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. It's, it's this? with the designer right now. OK. And then so you it'll be out, you think, this summer. I hope. Yeah. I'm hoping within the next few weeks. I don't know how it's I, I published through Amazon. So it's uh, their their Kindle Direct program. Uh huh. It's all print on demand, and I'm not sure how the uh, the virus is going to affect that. I don't know if printers are working, or because the way they work is they have they have printers all over the country, right. and whenever a book is ordered, they send the order to that printer. That's you know. If somebody in California orders the book, then it's printed in California. So How is the quality of, of the print-on-demand through Amazon? I'm pretty pleased with it. I, I haven't had any problems. Better than the old mini-comics? Yeah, I would say so. Do you have to go through a vetting process? Do they have to approve the book before they accept it for print-on-demand? Or is that something where you just sign up and you can work through them? Yeah, basically, yeah, you just sign up. and uh, I mean, as long as you fit their specifications. Um, that's great. So... Uh, Uh, Is there a title for the new book? The new book is going to be called Deliver Me, It's Not Easy Being Blue, (laughs) which is a play on uh, Kermit the Frog's It's Not Easy Being Green. Right, except that you guys wear that, that blue uniform. Right. I get it. Yeah. Very cool. That's great. 
Uh, do you have any pre-orders? Do you know from from folks in the community? Um, no, I haven't really put it out there yet. Okay, you're waiting for the design to come back. Right. Mm-hmm. That's great. So I think people, you know, if they if folks want to find that book, then they go to Amazon and look up Deliver Me. Right, Deliver Me by Terry Flippo. Deliver Me by Terry Flippo. That's great. There's a few a few Deliver Me's on there, so you gotta. Got to add my name to find it. Actually. Okay, excellent. But yeah, there is one book on there now, and uh, hopefully within a week or two, there will be another one. Well, congratulations on that, Terry. That's going to be cool. Hey, thanks. It's yeah. really it's neat to see that, you know, after you work for a year to get the material done and then to actually hold a book in your hand. It's it's cool. <laughs> well, yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I, I, I absolutely think so, too. And uh, I got to get my act together and get a Plastic Baby Heads book out there because um, it, it, there's something about the feeling of it. But also, you know, when you've got a backlog of material, it really it, it behooves you, you know, to put it out there and get it in the hands of people. You have to believe in your work. Right. And right. And, and the greatest gratification is is having an audience, it's not making so much money out of it. It's it's just finding that audience that is right for you and is right for your work. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's 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 not about the money. Only a veteran of small press can say that. You know, getting back to the career uh, and the history in comics, once you started on Axel and Alex, then you started to do, like, fortunately enough, you lived right around the corner from SPX. Right, right. right? The uh, Small Press Expo in Bethesda, Maryland, which is probably about, what, 30, 35 miles from my house. Uh Uh-huh. So uh, that was a big show where all the small press people would go and you'd buy a table or rent a table actually mm-hmm. and you'd sit there for two three days I think might might be three days now but uh in the beginning I, I think it was two days and people would come through the door and just walk by your table and look at your stuff and buy it or keep walking <laughs> yeah uh, i'm not sure if you were exhibiting before i was but you were pretty much going there right from the beginning yeah i the first one that i went i just attended as a fan and it was the second year i think and they they recently i think celebrated 25 years it's at least 25 right yeah something yeah. like that yeah so it's i was i was lucky to get in on the ground floor yeah and so what was it like in those days in the beginning? What was SPX like? You know, how big was it? How many people were exhibiting and what was the environment? What did it feel like? It kind of felt like a swap meet, you know? I mean, it, everything in in those days, the majority of it was the small photocopied books. I mean, if, if you go there now, it's it's crazy. Everybody's got their professionally printed books now. Mm-hmm. And uh, But in the old days, it was just uh, guys like me, you know? You'd go to Staples and make yourself some books and take them and put them out on the table. <laughs> and and you'd find all kinds of crazy material. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was the great that was the great thing about SPX. You know, it was stuff that you would never, ever see in a comic book store. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. No, not in those days. Right. And did you encounter anything? Or do you remember encountering anybody at those earliest shows who went on to do something that we all know at this point? Or or is it all kind of a blur? Yeah, it's a little bit of a blur. I mean, I remember uh, Art Baltazar. Are you familiar with him? I've heard the name. Yeah. He was at the the early shows. He's gone on to do like um, Tiny Titans for DC. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. The yep. animated thing, and he he does some of his own stuff. I think he had a a book called Oh Yeah, mm-hmm. that was uh that was in shops and everything. But I think Tiny Titans is probably the thing that he's done 
okay. that uh, would be the most mainstream. Do you, do you remember Steve Conley? I do. And, and Steve Conley has gone on to do what has been a Rubin Award-nominated webcomic called The Middle Age. He was on the show so a year and a half ago, I guess. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like, I remember meeting Steve down there. He's, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's a great guy, and he was doing pretty cool stuff way back then. And The Middle Age is just one of these the most beautiful comics you know you could ever hope to see <laughs> i mean it's just so beautifully done i don't even try to compete with what he does in terms of his coloring is is you know lettering storytelling it's just all exquisite it's really exceptional stuff i'm so glad to see that but i remember him from back then yeah he he's a real technical whiz isn't he yeah he certainly is you know yeah i mean not only that but he's just a great he's also very funny as a yeah a writer and a great storyteller and a great draftsman i mean he draws beautifully and and uh, it's all it's you know a plug for steve here but great <laughs> but i remember when i first started exhibiting i met you and i met steve briefly uh, in passing i met also in passing uh, two other folks who i was looking up to big time in those days jeff smith and oh yeah dave sim i remember meeting both of those guys that was before i think dave sim started you know, writing or saying some of these things that I found so objectionable. But uh, he took a right turn or a left turn there somewhere. Yeah, I think it was more of a hard right. And, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but anyway, he was a very important figure, though, in the history of independent comics. And Jeff Smith, too, uh, was, you know, still is. Right. A very significant figure. It was kind of cool to meet him. Oh, right. Those were the guys that you would point to and say, I want to do what he's doing. Yeah, exactly. You know, never got that far. But uh, it was always that was always the case. Yeah. You know, want want to do what he's doing. And, and you know, both of them, you you know, you have to tip your hat to anybody. Win, Wendy Peeney and, and Richard Peeney and uh, Elfquest and uh, Dave Sim and Cerebus and Jeff Smith and Bone. Uh, and, you know, a whole host of other folks who were working back then um, independently built their own little companies, you know, and um, succeeded admirably. It was great. A lot of, you know, the sense of possibility was palpable at those shows in the early days, I think. And I don't know what they're like now, but, but you know, it's become such a, a big event now. So, yeah. so different. Have you gone to any of the any of them since then i i stopped going probably five or six years ago i probably stopped stopped exhibiting before that but uh i had a friend from up your way jim coon who continued to do the show and he would come drive down from new york and he would stay stay here with me mm-hmm. and i would go to the show with him it's been a few years since he's he's done that though well and, i think there's a point at which you know i hate to s- it's going to sound like old geezer, but I guess in some way, you know, the older folks make way for the younger folks, you know, after doing it for a while. I don't know. I think we've done it and, you know, we've experienced what we experienced there. And then it's time to move on to other things and uh, other ways of getting our work out there. I think you find what you need to find there or you don't, you know. Right. Right. And the show is it's kind of, in my opinion, it's kind of morphed into a an art school crowd. Oh, very much so. That's a big change. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting um, comparison, because in the um, in the 90s and the 80s, uh, well, actually, in the early years of the show in the 90s, it was very comic booky and comic book artists and cartoonists uh, didn't go to art school a lot of the time. 
because art school frowned on comics. Right. So, right. you know, when I was in art school and I've had this conversation with a couple of folks who were close to my age, the idea was, you know, you don't, you go to art school and you don't make comics. That's, that's low art, right? You're trying to make f- high art for the galleries and for the museums. And you don't get in that tradition because there are all kinds of things that high art doesn't like about low art. And so, uh, there's kind of snobbishness involved, right? And so if you were into comics, you kept it on the side. And there wasn't a lot of focus like there is today. I mean, I'm in a university and I teach comics. So it's a different, very different mindset. And so what you do see, I think you're absolutely right, is that the invo- the folks who are going now, the audience and the practitioners are coming out of uh, more and more out of an art school tradition. Right, right. I mean, you've got, I mean, I find it more about presentation than actual content. I mean, okay. you've got these beautiful screen printed covers and, and uh, everything is, is meticulously done except for the actual work. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, I think you're referring to the story, right? Right. And, and a lot of times, and well, this is true of myself. Uh, I have to say, you know, when I did Lookout Monsters or I did Fan Dancer, which are two big collage books, it wasn't so much about story. It was very much, a, although story was part of it, it was very much about the visuals and the making and the materials and the presentation, just as you say. Because right. from the art school perspective, what you're doing is making an art object. And an art object is a visual object. And it exists as, you know, uh, this object to be appreciated visually and immerse yourself in, you know, from an aesthetic point of view in terms of visuals. But you're not you're not a writer. You know, a lot of times art schools coming out of an art school, your predisposition is towards the visual and towards art and not so much in terms of story. And so because, you know, uh, we're not talking about a lot of independent comics artists coming out of, you know, literature programs. Yeah. I mean, and I don't want to put anybody down. I mean, there's there's plenty of of traditional well done comics there. But but there is a, a certain subset that is like you say, it's it's the object itself is the art. Yeah. Yeah. And for a long time, you know, that was actually, I, I, I'm probably better when I'm working in that direction, but for a long time, that was my own predisposition. I love telling good stories. I love, I love all of it, actually. <laughs> you know? I mean, I do. And that's why I try to do both. You know, I, I, I've, for about 10 years now, I've been focusing on a more traditional approach to comics with, with, with varied, uh, but never any great success. But, um, the, the other stuff, uh, which doesn't look for a big audience, you know, the collage comics, the art comics, as we call them, uh, you know, we're all about the object and the associations that were implied between images and the, the, you know, interaction between images and the multiplicity of ideas that are generated through those interactions. That's what those visuals are about, you know. Uh, it's about the collision of two different images and what it inspires in a, in a reader or a viewer. And so story can be this, that, or the other thing. You know, there's a thread, and it's a thread that guides you, but it's not going to lay it out for you. And it's not going to spell it out. It's just going to imply and it's going to rely on ambiguity. And, and that can't for for a lot of folks, that's not particularly satisfying uh, as a comics experience because they're looking for something else. They are looking for something that goes from point A to point B to point C and that has an arc 
you know, story arc that completes uh, in a satisfying way. And it's two different kinds of desires there on the part of the reader. Right, right. And it, it's all good, you know. It's, it's, there's something for everybody. Well, yeah, I think it is all. I think it is all good. I think it's exciting to see when you're at a show like that. I think visual is going to predominate in a way because that's what you're attracted to initially, right? So right. the beautiful screen print cover and insides, and, uh, it's all going to attract you. Ultimately, what carries you through the book, though, is how successful and makes you go back is how successful a story it is and how much you love the characters, and and that's. That's something that can't isn't really taught in art school. So anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> oh well, you know it's just it's interesting. You know, I guess the point is that we have a history in regard to some of this stuff, and and so you can always look back and and theorize and and sort of sum up what your experience has been. And it'll be interesting, you know, we won't be around <laughs> to know, but it'll be interesting to see how it continues to develop over the years um uh right now it's it's that but also i think but these shows too you find a lot of folks who are web comics artists who are printing their books who are doing a more traditional approach and some of them are very 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 good right oh yeah yeah there's great i mean i would always come home with an armful of books yeah go down there it's, it's i would i would usually end up spending more than what i made <laughs> oh gosh which i, I think never, is probably yeah. fairly common at those shows yeah i never I, I never made any great amount of money. The best show I ever had was not an SPX. It was when the New York Comic Con just began at the Javits Center 10, 12 years ago or so. And I did that show. I got half a table and I made really good, not great money, but I did pretty good. That was exciting. That was a lot of fun. But then it's, it quickly became such a big event that you couldn't get in anymore or it cost three times as well, more than that four times as much, you know, to do what you used, you were doing before for a relatively cheap price. So, uh, but that was, that was the only time I ever made, you know, a decent amount of money. Still yeah. wasn't great, but it was decent. And that's kind of what the small press expo has become. It, it, it's not actually juried, but it kind of feels that way. Mm -hmm. The prices are pretty high for, for a guy that's printing photocopy comics, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people will rent a table, a big table together as a group. Right. Spread out the cost, you know, rather than individually. And that helps if you can do that. Oh, yeah. So what's next? I guess for Deliver Me, it's the book. The book comes out and that'll be out this summer, hopefully, if uh, everything is, if we've turned the corner, perhaps, with, with COVID. What do, uh, what can we do for postal workers, mail carriers now in the face of, of this pandemic? Do they need something from their uh, constituency, from the, those of us in the public who are waiting for the mail every day? Uh, the number one thing I would say is give them space. I know a lot of them are concerned about handing the mail directly to people, which kind of is a challenge now because everybody's at home. <laughs> yeah. And they want to go out and get their mail. Yeah. I've I've seen lots of stories on the on the page of of customers leaving hand sanitizer, little bottles of hand sanitizer for the carriers, masks, even toilet paper. <laughs> so, well, toilet paper has become quite the commodity these days. Yes, it has. Toilet paper has gone up as everything else has gone down. Right. I don't know. Mystifies me. Yeah, but. me too. Well, 
you know, it's just everybody needs toilet paper. So, you know, uh, and and it's it's disappeared, and that that's quite the phenomenon. But um, uh, so here we are. We we never thought we'd be here where we right. were. The number one item on everybody's shopping list was toilet paper, and and uh, it's become the rarest of commodities. Um, so <laughs> leaving for a postal worker is a good thing, I would think. Everybody can use it. Yeah, so, they don't have time to go to the store. So yeah, yeah. So if people want to find Deliver Me, and they want to read Deliver Me and catch up with you know your work and with what's going on in the postal community, they go to the Facebook page. The Facebook, yep, Deliver Me, exclamation point, is the name of the Facebook group. And do you have to join in order to get the No, up? it's uh, actually, it's a public page, so anybody can, you can go and just check it out. And how do I get the comic on my feed? Comic, you have to go, if you go directly to the page, it should be at the top every day. I mark it as an announcement and pin it to the top. Okay. It should be the first thing you would see. So if you go to the page every day, okay. Right, and then if you want to see more, you can just click announcements, and that should be nothing but the the cartoons. And so, Terry, have you ever thought of doing a page that just deliver me the comic? I thought about it recently. It would. It might be a good idea because you know I have to say my wife wanted to read it. Who's you know you know Deb. She's always a fan of yours. And to support it, but she didn't want to go through all these posts in order to read it. And she didn't know about the announcements thing. For those who are just casual readers uh, who might be looking for your work, it might be a viable and a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, That's it's it's something I've been considering because the comic strip has gotten a little bit buried in the other comments and and articles and, you know, just just posts by by members. Yeah, there's just so much going on on the Deliver Me page. It's so active, which is great to see. It's fantastic. Yeah, we've got a great community there. It's unbelievable. Great amount of support, great amount of dialogue. I think it's fantastic. It's it's a wonderful voice and platform for mail carriers and people in the postal service. Right. Uh, we've got members that work for UPS. Um, oh, wow. We've got a couple of members that are Canada Post and and uh, Britain Post. <laughs> really, it's international. Yeah, well, in a manner of speaking, I mean, <laughs> it, it's not a big constituency, but they they are there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, and so you've got you've got that going, but yeah, just for the casual reader. But it is, it, and I think that's the thing that's daunting if you are a casual reader and you're just interested in the comic and you go to the page. You're gonna unless you know what you were just saying about the announcements, you're gonna find it frustrating to find the strip among all this other stuff. So you know, I think it it wouldn't be a bad idea to have that page just for casual readers. I'd love to see that. Is at the same time, I I I'm a, I did join the page, so I get the posts all the time in my feed. Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> I know. So it's a lot of stuff, but um, but still, you know, that would be a cool thing. So uh, so okay, I hope you do that. That's um, something to think about. Yeah. So do that. Okay. Is there anything else we need to talk about? In terms of, I'm, I always get to the sort of the end of these interviews, and I'm like thinking, okay, was there something I forgot to talk about? I guess we covered the basis. I think we did. We did. Excellent. So, Terry, it's been just so nice to have you on the show. Oh, yeah. Always great to talk to you, Jeff. 
So there you have it, Terry and myself, finishing up that conversation. I didn't want to let it go on too much longer because then you'd have, you know, two weepy old guys <laughs> crying in their beers about how great the old days were. Oh, I don't know, you know. It is. It was our life, right? So it's not that, that uh, they're any better or any worse. It's just that uh, they were our experiences. Folks at SBX nowadays are having their experiences, and one day they'll be old people looking back <laughs> on the days. Ah, do you remember when? Yeah. But a nicer guy than Terry, you cannot find any place. And Terry is a sweet guy, and I'm just so happy. I really am. I'm just so happy for him. It's great. And uh, I don't think he ever wanted anything more than, than an audience that was supportive and enthusiastic. And he's got it every day right there on the Deliver Me page. And uh, you should definitely check it out. Even if you're not a postal worker, you'll still find it something you can relate to and something that's funny. And it's really about connecting, right? That's what comics are in general. It's a place we connect. And uh, one cartoonist connects with an audience and uh, I think that that's really important something that we should not take for granted today as we are all hungering for connection one way or the other in this circumstance we find ourselves so upcoming on the show boy oh boy I tomorrow I am going to have a conversation with one of the greatest uh, syndicated cartoonists going these days Dennis the Menace's Marcus Hamilton will be on the show so be looking for that it should be posted sometime i'm hoping to get this one out there quickly to you maybe next week i'm really looking forward to this conversation we are going to be talking about dennison the menace and and we're going to talk about uh, hank ketchum and we're going to talk about comics and comic strips and uh, marcus's really interesting career path he's got a great story to tell and it's a story about second chances and uh, i think you'll find it really inspiring and I'm looking forward to having that conversation with him tomorrow. So be on the lookout for that. One of these days soon, we are going to nail down Kevin Much, and we're going to have him on the show to talk about The Rough Pearl, which is a book that from Fantagraphics that came out today. So order yours from Fantagraphics or order it from Amazon. I know I'm going to be doing that. Get your copy as soon as you can. This is a mind-blowing book. It is. I've read the first 100 pages or so. It's mind-blowing. And uh, if you love graphic novels, you are going to love this book. Uh, it's it's really terrific and I don't know of another book like it. Anyway, we gotta get Kevin on the show soon. And then there's Khalid Birdsong and there's Jens Stiva and there's uh, Jan Elliott of Stone Soup, the syndicated comic strip Stone Soup is going to be on the show too. So we've got lots happening here. Uh, and, you know, as soon as I can get the stuff out there, I'll get it out to you because uh, I know you're dying for it, trapped in your apartment or in your house, wherever you are, and uh, you're climbing the walls. Everybody is, right? So, you know, we've got to keep those comics discussions going and and I will as soon as I can right I'll get them out to you as soon as I can so be on the lookout okay and um, in the meantime just be healthy be well and I hope that you are getting through this and I hope you have a great support system and I hope your loved ones are okay so uh, till next time thanks for listening <laughs>